From now on, call me Geraldo. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created Listen to the voice of an unvaccinated American who are lying in hospital bed, taking their final breath, saying, If only I've gotten back to If only. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast. I'm James Lilich. We've got Peter Robinson, Rob Long's out, Bethany Mandel, John Gabriel are here. We're going to talk to Harmeet Dillon about the COVID mandate. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you. Welcome to the Ricochet Podcast, episode 560. This is Peter Robinson, and I'm pausing over the word over the number 560, because when Rob Long, who's not here, and I started Ricochet lo those many episodes ago, he talked me into doing a podcast, and I was sure it would blow over. It may yet, but it'll have to be at the 561st or later version. Today, 560. Joining me in the absence not only of my friend and co-founder, Rob Long, but my friend and co-host, James Lilacs, is also missing today. This is what happens when you get to the tail end of summer. Joining me, John Gabriel. Is the B team. The B team. No, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. The three of us, Rob and James and I feel the two of you breathing down our necks all the time. We have the obvious topic. We'll, we'll, we'll We'll get to COVID and politics and our wonderful guest, Harmeet Dillon, who'll be joining us in a few minutes. We'll get to that. We'll also get to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but we have to begin with this. Bethany, this is the first time you and I have spoken since you and Seth tied my wife and me by having a fifth child. Now, mm-hmm. so tell us how you regret it. Tell us how you've had too many children. It was all a terrible mistake. <laughs> the culture is right. Women should put off childbearing until they're 45 and have, right? All this is true. You regret it bitterly, mm-hmm. do you sure. not? This morning, Seth said, when we have another. And I was wow. like, that's <laughs> awfully presumptuous of you. I feel like I wasn't consulted. But yes, okay, fine. So what's the age range now? How old is the oldest? And the Seven. And she's almost eight. And the baby is still very much a baby. Just, what, two months? Three yeah, months? he's not even two months here. Let me look. Tomorrow he's two months old. Excellent. Yeah, uh, and he's a delight. And currently sleeping in um, a, a rock and play in my kitchen that has been recalled. So I'm really living <laughs> on the edge right now. And I jump back and look at him every now and then to make sure everything's okay. And how long has it been since you slept through the night? Oh, I'm sleeping great. You oh, are? I'm going to knock. Oh, yeah. Before oh, my God. Nobody amazing. has a sniffle. You don't hear mommy, mommy in the middle of the night? No. So I'm off duty. I'm not I'm not doing any of the older children's. Seth is on duty for the other four. Because if I, if I get up, so I sleep really well because we co-sleep, speaking of all the unsafe things I do as a parent. So the baby sleeps in our bed with us, and he's just glued to my side. And if I move, then he wakes up, so I can't move. So um, Seth has to handle the other four children and the dog. And the dog is actually the worst of the bunch. 
He's he's like a one year old Springer Springer Poodle puppy who I'm sure you'll hear in the background. He's a nightmare. <laughs> the other kids are mostly sleeping. Okay, uh, and his school started. What's the, what's the COVID school situation? Yeah. Well, so I homeschool, and so we started homeschooling like a month and change ago. Uh, and we're taking all whoa, September whoa, whoa, off whoa, whoa. because there's like a bazillion Jewish holidays. You're keeping all five children home? So sort of. Uh, my four-year-old and my two-year-old are doing a part-time preschool program. Right. When Monday, Wednesday, Friday for three hours a day. It's amazing. Um, so, I mean, I have most of my kids most of the day, but the three hours a day that they're in preschool a couple days a week, we're like, going to Target to buy shoes for the other kids. Like, we're doing okay, all so, the and I have to, stuff that are smart for all to, five kids. We get, we, we get to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in a minute, but one, just one more question. So here's what I still don't quite get. To have five children in this day and age, to homeschool those five children, you just mentioned Jewish holidays, to be religiously observant. Are, do you and Seth feel intentionally countercultural? <laughs> yes, and that's why, I, I mean, that's not why I do it. I obviously do it for much higher, deeper reasons than this. But I love to be a rebel. And so, you know, being a rebel isn't listening to rock music anymore or sleeping around. Now it's having five children and homeschooling. So. Wow. Um, but no, I mean, yeah, we're, there's very few people in this boat for sure like where we live, um, but there's like a total renaissance of this sort of more focused of home, home life. Um, on Instagram, there's a lot of moms like me, but with much more sort of pretty houses and children that they show. <laughs> I don't show my children. They like, they clean their houses, I think. I don't know. We don't do that. Um, but no, I mean, there's this whole sort of movement on social media to, like, highlight big families that homeschool and, and sort of glamorize them. And they, these people have tons of followers. Wow. Wow. So that's heartening as far as I'm concerned. John? I think so, too. John, 9-11, where were you? How did you find out? What was your response? Well, years ago just before recording the interview, I actually talked to my daughter. She's in her second year of college now at uh, Arizona State, the Stanford of the West, as we like to call it. Uh, but uh, she was just mentioning how in school she never was taught about 9-11. And she was just noticing how odd that was. She was just never – what, what year is she? What she year is, she is uh, second year at Arizona State, so she's a sophomore. Okay, so she was born <clears throat> just the year after 9-11. Exactly, right. yeah. So, so she, she has born... no firsthand memory whatsoever. Correct, yeah. And she was just talking – to me about it, saying, isn't that odd? I went, yeah, that's very odd, but I remember when they were younger, I just thought it was strange. They do a moment of silence, but that's it. As for me, I, you know, I'm on West Coast time, of course. I was going to drop off my car at a dealer. I'm getting ready, driving there, turn on the radio. One tower's been hit. Um, just before I got to the place, uh, the second tower was hit. I was just utterly confused. I hadn't seen any images, and then uh, I got to the a car repair shop, and the only people in the waiting room were me and a student from ASU who happened to be Arabic. And he was just sitting there with his head in his hands. And Oh, really? And that was before we knew who did it or anything, but 
kind of all I could think of is he just realized that his life was going to get more challenging, more difficult. Um, and I was just confused at that point. He was quite upset. Um, so it, it was very odd. And of course, uh, the things that people don't remember too are just the strangeness. I wasn't anywhere close to the Twin Towers or DC, but you just, no, there were no flights. And we're not too far from a flight path. I can usually see when I'm on my nightly walk, planes coming in or leaving off in the distance. And uh, after maybe 10 days, two weeks, when they did flights again, the first airplane I saw after that, after watching all those horrible images, was I was driving downtown. I was facing a, a flat glass and steel skyscraper, and a plane flew behind it. And I kind of panicked and almost drove off the road, but it was just the plane was far in the distance. Um, but I was like, right. wow, this this has definitely changed life. It was a wow. pretty wild experience. Bethany, where were you? Where, when, how? I was really young. Um, I was a Rub it in, sister. Rub it in, sister. <laughs> I knew this was coming. I was like, oh, and then they're going to make fun of me about how old I am. But at least I remember it. Um, so I actually had a sort of similar weird conversation with my kids this past week, John, that I, I realized that of course they don't know because they're so much younger than even yours. And my, my kids read, um, I don't think I have it here, but there's like these books, I Survived, and it's like I Survived Japanese Tsunami, I Survived Hurricane Katrina, yada, yada, and, um, and there's an I Survived book about 9-11 that my kids read. Um, so I was a sophomore in high school in upstate New York. And uh, they made an announcement over the loudspeaker that uh, I think one plane had hit, maybe two, maybe two at that point. And everyone sort of listened. And they never made news announcements over the loudspeaker at school. So I was kind of like, that's weird. And everyone else just kept on going about their day. Um, I have never been a rule follower. And now I'm countercultural, having five children. So it, it all sort of goes it in the same fits. direction. But I, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so I snuck into the teacher's lounge and sat in the back, and no one ever noticed me. And I sat there the whole day watching TV. And um, and I watched I watched the towers fall. I watched the Pentagon get hit. I watched the questions about Flight 93. Where is it? And then it, it went down in Pennsylvania. And um, and I sort of remember walking out after the last bell, um, like I I was in a cloud and everyone sort of just running around, have, like no one else had heard anything. No one had cell phones, like no one knew what was going on. And all the teachers knew because people were coming in and out all day. And I came out like, oh my God, you people have no idea, no mm -hmm. clue. And I went home and I got home and it's actually kind of a weird fond memory there's my baby i'll go get him in a second um but i came home and just sobbed in my mother's arms and i just laid mm. on her sobbing for hours and we just watched tv and she died a year later and it's actually like a weird good memory um because that was sort of the last time i had that kind of moment with my mother because i was 16 when my mom died um so um so yeah i mean it really sort of changed my life trajectory i became much more interested in international politics and stuff then it, it led me to probably where i am now honestly where are you now you're talking into a microphone recording a podcast while we hear a two-month-old mewling in the background crying in the other <laughs> i'm gonna pause for one second y'all can continue course. i'm just gonna get my baby of course so 
John, if you think through, if you, what, what did you tell your daughter that she needs to know about what happened 20 years ago? Ah, we're welcomed now, to my immense relief, and to no doubt to her listeners' relief as well, we are welcomed. James Lilacs has popped up. James, thank you for joining us. Over to you. Ho- over to you. Happy to be on. How can I jo- how can- how can I join you, Peter, when we are a part of the thing every single week? I mean, it's a, it's, thank, it's thank you for not abandoning us, actually, would be more right. 9-11, I remember um, quite distinctly because it was book release day for me. My book, The Gallery for Credible Food, was coming Something. out. And book release days are meaningless. Uh, but it's still, it's kind of fun just to know that today is the official day for that. Who knows? Maybe the New York Times will call. Uh, and I was in the shower listening to the radio and wondering why they were repeating the story of the bombing of the World Trade Center for many years before, until I realized what was going on. I sent my wife off to work, and I went downstairs to take care of my daughter, Zuan, and was crawling around on the floor with a small telephone that kept saying, hello, hello, as though we were getting this call from some unknown future or entity. And she blithely played away in front of the television set for the entire day while I sat there and watched and recorded and talked on the phone and ripped up columns and paced and gnashed my teeth and wondered what the devil was coming of this. Um, I just had the feeling that we were on the beginning of something very big and very long. And it was a horrible day. It was a dreadful day. And as John noted earlier, because I was listening, the plane started coming in. Unlike John, I live really close to to an airport. So I heard them all coming in one by one by one by one, the entire fleet being grounded in Minneapolis. And after that, dead silence. And then after that, in the evening, the lone sound of a single jet above patrolling the sky, which was oddly comforting. But it made you feel as if everything in the country was suddenly, suddenly quickened to a, to a point of, of, of absolute alert. Um, never forgotten it. And the, just yesterday, a couple of days ago, I found on, on the, the YouTubes, somebody had taken some footage that amateur shot on the day that it came down out of their window, propped up a camera, let it roll. And they had upscaled it to 4K so that it had this preternatural clarity to it. And I, I, I watched it with the exact same emotions. The belief that somehow this time they're not going to fall. The, the, the horror of seeing the people moving back and forth behind the windows. The, 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 the sense of unreality when the second plane had the second plane that had that hammer blow, that one that absolutely cinched for you, that beyond a doubt we were in a new world. Um, and the anger, the absolute fury at watching the towers come down. To this day, I watch it, and I am incandescent desperately angry about it. And I didn't even like the buildings particularly. Remember what Paul Goldberg said about them, that one was banal, but two was modern sculpture. And he's kind of right. But at the same time, they, they, were, they were iconic, say, using the word I hate, part of the landscape, part of New York. And when there was nothing there, that empty wound in the sky, you just it would be a year or so before I eventually could get to Manhattan. And when I did and walked into Grand Central Station and there was this enormous display of all of the posters that people had put up after 9-11 on street corners, on signs, on poles, whatever. They'd saved them. And there was this long, long wall of, of, of missing people that stretched the length, practically, of, of the terminal. And it was it, it just, again, brought you back in a second. Everything. You'd pass in the street and you would see a firefighter's uh, memorial to 9-11 with some teddy bear that somebody had added and a couple of guttering candles, and you'd be back in a second. Now, not so much, which is probably healthy in a way, 
you don't want to make judgments in 2021 based on the emotions you had in 20, 2001. But it never goes away, and you never do forget. And I can't believe it's been 20 years. I've just been informed of, via my little earpiece here that the, uh, the natural uh, thing to do after telling a tale like that is to do a commercial. And I, <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt any sort of transition. I think we should just leave that where it was and go on to the fact that, well, it is 2021. But, you know, normal keeps getting redefined. I go to an office now that doesn't have anybody in it. So when I walk from my car to the office, sometimes I like to listen to music to pump me up as if I'm going to some party that isn't really there. But when I do that, I want to hear the sounds I want to hear them with clarity. I want to hear them be all-encompassing and immersive. And the same thing when I walk home from the office, sometimes I like to listen to ambient chill, kind of music that Peter Robinson is probably now rolling his eyes about. What's that? Well, he knows and he hates it. fact is, your music gets you in moods. It creates an environment you want to be in. And so it's important what you listen to your music on. Now, no matter how you're feeling about getting back out there in the world, there's no denying it's going to be an adjustment. When the world that you return to gets too loud... Well, you can create your own soundtrack by popping in your Raycon wireless earbuds. Sometimes you need some upbeat music to pump you up before you go to see people. You haven't done that in a while. Or stay calm with some guided meditation. That's why Raycon is a name you might have heard of before. If you haven't, you're going to because this is a new headphone. Let me tell you what's different about it. Raycons are the best way to listen. They come with a bunch of gel tips for your comfort. It's, uh, you can adjust exactly what goes in your ear to get a perfect seal. Unlike some brands, they don't stick out of your ears, you know, like you're wearing some thing that Chris Cuomo would, you know, use as a prop on a show. Here's this other thing that I love. 32-hour battery life. Oh, how many times do you just hear that sound that says, I'm out of power, I've never had that happen to me with my Raycons. So you can listen to what you want, when you want, for a really long time. Even better, besides the 32-hour battery life and the great seal, you start at half the price of the other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee, so you can't lose. Try them. You don't like them, send them back, but you're going to love them. So give them a try. You will see what I mean. Create your own soundtrack for life with Raycon. Right now, Ricochet listeners, and that would be you, can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash ricochet. That's buyraycon.com slash ricochet to save 15% on your Raycons. And that's B-U-Y, by the way. BuyRaycon.com slash Ricochet. And we thank Raycon for sponsoring this new Ricochet podcast. You know, this really is perfect because we have one of the founders of Ricochet, and we have two people who came along later and made it an even better place, made it what it is. And, of course, uh, for the John and Bethany and their editorial capabilities. But, you know, John, you wrote that thing after January 6th that still tars you to this day. And you, Bethany... Uh, somehow managed to, you know, avoid the, the, the nasty, screaming, killer of grandma persona that you have on Twitter. So um, I should ask both of you. Uh, John, how do you deal with the fact that Ricochet is a, a, a civil community, but a bumptious one at times? And then, Bethany, I'm going to ask you how you view the difference between the scrum of Twitter and the relative calm debating society that is Ricochet. John? Go first. Um, I uh, one thing that I like is I'm used to people, shocking though it is, that disagree with me. Um, I've usually been uh, a minority political voice wherever I have been, and this includes private sector. Back when I was in the Navy in college, of course, uh, being the one student who asked a provocative question from the back. Um, so I really don't mind uh, the disagreement. 
as long as it is kept respectful. And that's one of the great things about Ricochet is people don't need to troll each other or harass each other. Uh, you can just ask honest questions, trying to understand someone's views. The thing that I probably like the most about Ricochet is articles that seem to come and posts that seem to come totally outside of my experience. Mm -hmm. um, the history of Khmer culture uh, is one. Um, the one that I always go back to, and it's years old now, um, the process of laying concrete, what needs to be considered. Things that I would never even consider and that I'm fascinated about them. And then when I'm seeing construction nearby. <laughs> that's, the best, uh, uh, that, that's the best advertisement for Ricochet. It makes drying concrete, drying cement exciting. But, but it's amazing. It's like it does. Now it's we always, yes. Right. We, we have lots of construction around here, and now I study them. Oh, that's what they're doing. Oh, okay, that apartment's it's just going to have to sit vacant for a while because they just poured this, you know, foundation or whatever. So it's just the random bits of information that people are experts in, and it fascinates me. And then you'll get people, yeah, I worked in the Senate for 20 years. Um, so here's my perspective on what's going on with a filibuster. Mm -hmm. So um, you just get all walks of life and are presented with perspectives they are that are not filtered slash neutered by groupthink coming out of the Beltway or Manhattan. It's just people from all walks of life and usually far more impressive than the talking heads um, that we see on cable news each night. True. There was a post the other day about um, the new folks in the neighborhood. Somebody who had lived, I think, 20 years in the country and was talking about somebody who else had moved in. Just you know, threw it open to people who lived in wide open spaces. And as I read the thread, all of these people that I've been reading for years, turns out they live way, they live on 45 acres out there somewhere with a John D. little to, to mow their, their lawn and the rest. And it just opened up something else I'd never seen before. Always something to learn. And Bethany, as I said before, you um, have a contentious existence on Twitter. Not that you're nasty. You're not. But your existence really, really annoys people who follow you obsessively and tweet responses to things that everything that you say and have this persona of you. So how do you keep uh, the equanimity that you have on Twitter and not bring it into Ricochet, which is a much calmer place? So one of my favorite things was when I first started writing for Ricochet, I think before I worked for Ricochet, um, I wrote I wrote a piece and, and Scott told me, you should read the comments. And I was like, oh, that's not a thing I do. I don't read the comments. <laughs> that's like punditry 101. You never read the comments. But on Ricochet, you actually do because people are bound to not be jerks and not swing insults and ad hominem attacks and um and reading the comments is now one of my favorite things to do uh only on ricochet one and only place um well but on twitter i mean you just you kind of just have to filter out everyone who who doesn't follow you because um everyone else is crazy and one of my favorite things that carol markowitz said She's a columnist for the New York Post. She, she set her settings on Twitter to not see tweets from people who don't follow her because it eliminates the drive-bys, which is something that I really uh, like. I suppose. But, but it's by the same token, though, if you did that, you would not be exposed to the breadth and depth of, of brilliance that is Twitter. You would not have been able to say, as you did recently on, on uh, Ricochet, you wrote a piece, Texas Taliban and the actual Taliban, in which you said, quote, do you, in fact, know what the Taliban is? You keep referring to those in Texas who support the new pro-life law as the Taliban. 
But you know what it is? I'll give you a hint. They were in the news just last week. I didn't see you post about it. I'm sure you'll get around to it as the proud and brave feminist that you are, end quote. Now, you can't get that sort of inspiration unless you're no. on Twitter, where the blue checks and on down say the stupidest I got it from things. Instagram. Ah. Do you know how <laughs> of all you, this much? Instagram. <laughs> so, if I don't tweet something that I've written, it's often because I don't want people who I know in real life to see mm-hmm. it. Um, and that was one of the pieces where I was like, I just need to get this out. And hopefully these people follow me on, I know they don't follow me on Ricochet. Hopefully they don't follow me on Twitter. But I just had to get it out because my my Instagram of all of these idiot feminists who don't listen to this podcast so I can just open fire who are like, oh, my God, this is the Taliban. And meanwhile, my I, I don't get political on Instagram. I, I think it's, there should be safe spaces, and Instagram should be that. Um, but I posted on Instagram, like, sort of links to Afghan refugees and about the, the Marines that died, and, and all that was my, my, my Instagram content a great deal that week. Not a word from these people. And then all of a sudden, they are just full of memes they have so many things to say about the news and it's just because an abortion law that they don't understand that they don't like passed in a state that they don't live in and affects literally well, no one peter, how do you how do you use your instagram peter you, you know? hold on just a moment bethany is spectacular i just would like to make that point all right <clears throat> So, sorry, how, how will I use I, I know that the idea for some people of having political ideas on Instagram is like going to the one-hour photo booth and, and arguing about Jimmy Carter, but it, it's it's there. What used to be just this anodyne platform for dog pictures and sunsets and neon signs has now become yet another poisonous oh. means by which we can bore people with our opinions. Are you on Instagram, Peter? And if so, okay. I am on Instagram, and in fact, but I use it exclusively for dog <laughs> pictures. I, I mean... Sunsets would be a, a huge expansion of my portfolio. Yeah, that's now, all I, of Scott's I, content is just sunsets. <laughs> that's and showing exactly. off that he lives in Ojai. Uh-huh. Exactly. Oh, look exactly. where I live. Well, that Scott must be is nice. the other name for the Blue Yeti. That's right. John, yeah. well, let me ask you. No, that's interesting. Go ahead. So, so is, is, um, uh, go ahead. You. I, I want to throw this out there to everybody since we mentioned it and you all have Instagram accounts. Do you regard the spillover of politics into, into Instagram as inevitable and lamentable? Or is, is it just the fact that we, you know, can we not, can we, are we unable to craft a space that is not poisoned at this point by people's opinions? I, I think um, it's regrettable, but totally understandable. But I'm aggressive on Instagram and on Twitter when something annoys me. I don't follow the person, and I just don't see it anymore, mm-hmm. including many friends. And it's nothing personal, like especially on Instagram. It's like Twitter, breaking news and politics, and sarcastic commentary. And Instagram, I want to see dogs. I want to see landscapes. I want to see my yes. cousin who started a, a food kid. Yeah, yeah. My cousin who started a knife company in rural Michigan, and he has all these cool designs. That's what I'm there for. And uh, when I do post, that's the kind of content that I post. When I actually leave my house, which happens uh, on a monthly basis at least, I will take photos showing that I've emerged from my cocoon, and then I don't post again for another month. 
But Peter, this is for you. If we, I, we're, we're yeah. all tempted to just sever ourselves from this because it angers up the blood, and it, 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 it gives you a distorted view of what's going on. I mean, my Twitter feed right now is 99% vaccines, masks, arguing. That's it, 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 no matter what I follow. Um, and if all of those people shut up about it, nothing would change. So it's not the real world. But at the same time, I run across a post pointing me to Barry Weiss's uh, new Substack, which has a piece that calls you out, Peter Robinson, because it's about a 17-year-old kid, this brilliant 17-year-old kid who lives in New York, who writes this piece about he grew up uh, for religious Jamaican parents. He is not woke and considers himself to be lucky as such. And you're one of the people that he says he found early on that helped him shape his political beliefs. And you're called out also in the Twitter feed as to somebody that you should have an uncommon knowledge or we should have here or should be on Glamour's show. So we can't, I mean, so there is some good to it. We can't just say there's ricochet yes, and then yes. there's the sewer. Mm-hmm. It's a complex world you have to curate. And Bethany, of course, you got all the time in the world to curate, right? I mean, you only have seven <laughs> kids at the moment, so you probably Bye. do your curating between 1115, 11, you at least have an excuse to not know how many kids I have. But when I told Scott that I was pregnant again, he legitimately did. I know how many kids you have. I'm kidding you. You have five. Follow the last one. <laughs> I put I put a picture of me and my kids in my Slack picture so that everyone knew how many kids I have. <laughs> and I Continue. feel like it's also like if I if it takes me hours to reply, my picture is staring at you and it reminds you why it took me hours to reply. Bethany, um, well, before we depart from the number of children you have, <coughs> to which we keep going which back. Which is the perfect number, by the way, Peter. It's the perfect number. I, I, I think so, I, too. I, however, <laughs> however, uh, this is the exchange I overheard when my wife met Maureen Scalia, widow of the late Justice Scalia, and and the mother of nine Scalia children. And my wife said somewhat in self-defense, I think. She said, Mrs. Scalia, so good to meet you, and I want you to know that I have five children. And Mrs. Scalia said, oh, do you know what I call five children, dear? I call five children a good start. (laughs) Is that not beautiful? I love it. Sorry, go go wherever you were going to go before I interrupted you. Um, I mean, I, I think that there is a place for politics, of course, and for arguing. I I think that every everyone should just sort of have their respective places and understand what their purpose is. Instagram is for pictures only. Ricochet is when you need to actually have an intelligent conversation. And Twitter is when you want to yell at people. And I think there's value to yelling at people. It gets your all your aggression out. Um, I know it has been a wonderful valve for me. I just sort of hit the switch, and whenever my kids are pissing me off, I'm like, you're an idiot, but on Twitter. So I don't call my children idiots that often. Good for you. Well, here's the thing, though. Um, you know, <laughs> what we love to do sometimes, after, especially after you've spent too much time on social media, is construct an ideal version of the opposition that you believe exists in your head and then argue with them and win. I mean, I do that all the time so that I'm ready for when it finally comes and it hits me. It's like having, you know, you will read something so spectacularly and wonderfully stupid. There was a Bloomberg writer who had a piece, a, t- a series of tweets this week about how 
We failed to build a new rural identity for America. It, you, you know, we, the kid's 24 years old. We, and who's this we? It's the, what he described as the liberal elite that got bullied in small towns and moved to college. And he was just saying, no, no, no we should have stayed there. We should have helped build a new, a new culture for these benighted groups. And I read that, and I was crafting my response to it for the entire day. And it was like a piece of stringy meat that had gotten between a couple of teeth that I could not work out with my tongue. And sometimes, you know, you floss. But sometimes you don't always have floss. And sometimes, even though you floss and you brush your teeth, you still don't feel fresh, which is why you go to the mouthwash, right? Because we all love that clean, minty, fresh feeling you get from mouthwash. However, those big plastic bottles, we do not love those so much. No, they're big, they're bulky, and they're not so nice to look at when they're sitting on the counter. That's probably why a lot of us end up stashing them under the sink. It's pretty hard to kill germs or help promote, pre- prevent cavities from having your bottle down under the sink, right? Well, luckily, the oral care experts at Quip created an alcohol-free mouthwash that keeps, keeps your mouth healthy without the, you know, the burn of alcohol. And thanks to a sleek, refillable dispenser, it's pretty easy on the eyes, too. Now, you know Quip, don't you? They're the makers of the electric toothbrush and floss that you hear about all the time, especially on this show, because we love them. Well, they've launched a new mouthwash to help you complete your clean. Quip kills bad breath germs, helps prevent cavities, leaves you feeling fresh. And the four times concentrated formula packs everything you need to keep your mouth fresh with none of the alcohol or artificial colors that you'll find in other brands. It may look all bright and colorful, but that doesn't mean it works. It's good. The refillable dispenser's compact footprint will fit in any bathroom, big or small, and with five colors and two high-end finishes. When have you ever thought about the finish of your mouthwash bottle? Well, you will now. Uh, You're guaranteed to find a dispenser that matches your style. This is the one mouthwash you definitely will not want to hide under the sink. Sitting on your counter, it's a beautiful reminder to rinse every day and a subtle way of letting everyone know that your oral game is next level. Add a mouthwash refill plan to make sure your rinse never runs out. With a customizable subscription, you can get refills automatically delivered to your door every three months. You can stay on top of your swish without lugging any bottles home from the store. How refreshing. And along with mouthwash, of course, Quip also delivers fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Five bucks. You tried to buy a good toothbrush lately? <laughs> Five bucks is a bargain. Shipping's free. Another bargain. So you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of in-store shopping. With affordable refills, free shipping, it's easy to keep your whole mouth healthy. Join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip and start swishing today. And if you go to getquip.com slash ricochet5, right now you can get $5 off a mouthwash starter kit. That's $5 off a mouthwash starter kit, which includes the refillable dispenser and a 90-dose supply of Quip's four times concentrated formula at getquip.com slash ricochet and the number Five. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Ricochet 5. And we thank Quip for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Joining us now, my friend Harmeet Dillon, a graduate of Dartmouth College and the University of, Law, of Virginia Law School. And more to the point for our purposes right now, a very determined sewer Sue, not sewer, S-E-W-E-R, <laughs> sorry, strike that. I mean S-U-E-R, if that's the way to spell it. Harmeet, thank you. Harmeet is a big-time lawyer here in San Francisco, and let's put it this way. She has all the right enemies and sues a lot of them. Last night, the President of the United States took to the airwaves to say that he intends to do something about the 80 million Americans who remain unvaccinated, And he also said of certain red state governors that if they're not going to help control the pandemic, 
he would use his powers as president to get them out of the way. Harmeet then tweeted up a storm. Harmeet, why, from the legal point of view, what, what did you find so objectionable? Well, I don't think you have enough time in this podcast for me to go through that, but I, I think it's fair to say that I'm probably the lawyer in the United States who's filed the largest number of legal challenges to various forms of COVID legal indignities, ranging from shutting down businesses to shutting down schools to forbidding parents from even sending to their kids to a private school, preventing people in Hawaii from going from one island to the other uh, without, without some government certificate. And so this is just the latest indignity. And, you know, your question kind of presupposes the attitude of a lot of people, which is with all that we put up with here, what's the big deal here? I already right. got vaccinated. My boss already requires it. Well, it is a big deal. It is a big deal for the government to be mandating that a needle gets stuck into your arm. It is part of a increasing encroachment on our civil rights. The way that this president did it, after repeatedly promising, not just himself, but through his CDC director, just in end of July, that there would be no federal vaccine mandate, is, is incredibly disturbing because if the government can use your employer to push uh, what is perceived by most, even probably on this podcast, as a benevolent social policy, people should get vaccinated, they're going to be able to do it for things that those of us here do not perceive to be as uh, benign. Climate change, number of children people should have optimally. I mean, there are all kinds of things that the government may wish that we simply believe as Americans we should have a right to decide for ourselves. And the founders right. believe that as well. And so using the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's emergency provisions, which have very, very rarely been used, to claim that somehow suddenly, even though we are a country of more than 50% vaccinated workers, much higher than that in places like California, that, that COVID is now suddenly a toxic factor in the workplace that, man, that, that uh, justifies forcing people to either test weekly or shove needles into their arms against their consent, um, that the statute doesn't provide for that. There's no due process in this process. There's no notice and opportunity to be heard in this process. And frankly, there's no emergency at this point. We have a endemic, we have a disease that we are living with, a foreign virus, not a pandemic. We have a seasonal situation. The president suddenly woke up and said, oh, now we have an emergency. We have no different emergency today than we had yesterday or that we're going to have tomorrow. So um, my concern here, and I represent many employers who called me, as, and of course I represent a number of individuals as well, but here employers really have some rights. They have a right to tell the government, we don't want to be in possession of our workers' medical information. That creates liability for the employer. I'm an employer. If I know that Susie is pregnant or that Jim doesn't want to take the vaccine because he's got MS or something like that, all of a sudden I'm in possession of information that gives me liability when I fired that person for some totally independent reason. So that's right. a big problem for employers. Um, and I don't want to be the vaccine police. I, I'm here to do law, file lawsuits, give people legal advice. I'm not here to be the vaccine police. That's not my role, and I resent that being forced upon me. And I have many, many clients, not just conservative, 
who believe that similarly, it's not their role to get in between their workers and their personal medical decisions. Uh, I also don't think it's the government's role. And frankly, I don't think employers should be allowed to do that. I, I disagree with the EEOC guidance on this issue, which was the same guidance under Trump as it is under Biden, namely that employers have a right to require employees to get vaccinated as a condition of their employment absent a valid medical and religious exemption. Um, what we are doing in this country with this is we are making a mockery of these laws that allow these exemptions because people are desperate to not get vaccinated if they have not mentally come to terms with it. I'm vaccinated. I'm sure most of you are vaccinated. But if what people are doing to avoid vaccination is coming up with ridiculous and unsupported religious excuses and desperately going around trying to find doctors to certify that they shouldn't get vaccinated. Secondly, there's 100 million of us Americans, uh, by some estimates, who've been exposed to this virus. So millions of workers who don't need to be vaccinated are being forced to be vaccinated. And there are many physicians who say that people who have some medical issues and who have recently been sick with COVID should not get vaccinated. So this is a blunt instrument that is being used on the American populace for, a, I think, a fairly narrow problem with people who are resistant to being vaccinated. And it's frankly lazy. Where the government can force you to do something as opposed to persuade you through public service announcements or leadership or whatever, they're going to do that every single time. And, and I don't want to live in that country, frankly. So I think this is a watershed situation and we have to fight it. Whether you agree about vaccination or not, that's not the issue here. The issue is, can the government use employers to mandate socially beneficial things by force, which is what's happening here? And so, Harmeet, what is on that question? What's the what's the legal recourse? Who can demonstrate? Don't we have to wait for somebody to suffer some sort of demonstrable harm before anyone achieves actual legal standing? How do you fight it legally right now? You don't. No, I mean when when the law comes into effect. So to, as of today, OSHA has not announced these regulations. It is estimated that next week. OSHA will announce these rushed out regulations, no notice and comment or opportunity to be heard, to be heard. And then an employer who decides that they do not wish to be the vaccine police of their workforce or the testing police or incur that liability of expense of paying people for the time of testing or any of that, which in some states like California yes. is way up in the air. Do I have to pay for my workers going to get tested? Probably. Who's going to pay for that? Uh, you know, so all of the all of these questions. Oh, an employer would have standing because the employer is the one that will get fined if the employer doesn't implement this mandate. I think potentially workers could also have standing, but really it's going to be the employer. Now, what's interesting here and something that I've commented about before is for, for decades, conservatives have been on the pro-corporate side. Corporations can do no harm. Corporations are humans. Corporations can do whatever they want. Corporations can mandate five vaccinations or whatever. And that's what's led us to this point where, you know, corporate, it's in corporate interests of some corporations, if they're big corporations. I'm sure there are big corporations who are losing workers to red states or competitor corporations that aren't requiring vaccination who went to the president and said, hey, this is a problem with all this, you know, gosh darn worker mobility happening and people having choices. I mean, I'm losing workers this way, and it's a big headache. I have to compete on this. So why don't you just make it one standard for all? That's easy for a lot of corporations. There's no way that President Biden did this without the blessing right. of major right. corporations right. in the United States. And so I think I think where it's really corporations versus 
Americans, frankly, at this point, and, and this is an existential problem. Now, there are many employers, smaller, just above 100, not big behemoth publicly traded corporations who think this is terrible, and there will be many, many lawsuits. Wait, I wish you'd thought about these issues before we talked so we didn't get these vague, <laughs> nonspecific replies. My gosh, it's stunning. I'm just listening to you and thinking. Harmeet is great. Harmeet is great. So here, you can ask her anything. So here's the thing. I mean, yes, of course, the greater the larger the regulatory state, the more the, the more business will cozy up to the party of the state in order to curry favor. But there's something, and that's one lesson perhaps that we can bring to the electorate in a newly retooled, rethought Republican Party. But there's something else here. OSHA, I saw this week, had has buried somewhere in its, its its labyrinth of innumerable pages a regulation that gives them a certain amount of emergency powers in certain emergency situations, which makes you wonder whether or not every single every single regulatory agency has that clause buried somewhere, waiting to be plucked out and used at the opportune time. The argument here that we get out of this is should be is that look if if they can turn OSHA to do this, they can find some they can find something in any one of these state enforcement apparatus. To, to work the will without having to pass a law. That's a point we need to make. This may be a rule that they've summoned, but a rule is not a law. Nobody's voting on this. It's just saying, all right, you've got the power, go run with it. And that's wrong. It's, that's not how we're supposed to be ruled and governed. And well, it shouldn't be. However, I was shocked to learn when I showed up in law school in 1990 in the University of Virginia uh, having a very, you know, sort of old-fashioned conception of what our government consists of, three branches. There are four branches. Now I would say the media is probably the fifth branch of the government, but there are four branches of government. The administrative state is a growing, you know, cancer on the body of our democracy. And there were judges back in the 90s, Justice Scalia being chief among them, who sounded the alarm about the fact that, for example, the Judicial the Federal Sentencing Commission effectively made laws about what the sentences were going to be for people convicted of federal crimes. There was nobody, no legislature who voted on that. And, you know, that was that was problematic. But the rest of the court did not agree that that was a problem. And so, you know, here we are now with this edifice. So the challenges to this law are going to be under inter alia, the Administrative Procedures Act, as well as some other obscure laws. But look, even if you take the most liberal conception of what the CDC uh, sorry, what the OSHA guidelines provide for, they've only been in the last couple of three three decades, a couple of instances of this emergency authorization being used. One was earlier this year mm -hmm. for healthcare providers, which uh, has survived legal scrutiny. But the other one was for asbestos regulations, which was enjoined, and that was like three decades ago. So it's actually very rarely used. And what's going to be troubling for the Biden administration is that the most recent example of a sort of administrative state overreach was the um, the the housing situation, the eviction moratorium that they attempted to force through, and the United States Supreme Court slapped it down and said, "No, sorry, that's not what that's not what that, that emergency authorization stands for. You can't just sort of override state law this way and seize people's property under the guise of an emergency." But I will say on the other side, so this is going to be very interesting. Watershed is like when I went into court challenging the right of the government to shut down churches and schools and businesses and hair salons and nail salons and stuff you did in your own home and moving from one island home of, that you own to another in Hawaii, I would have thought some judges, conservative judges, would have been all over that. But but whether they were Reagan appointees, Bush appointees, Obama appointees, Clinton appointees, they all ruled against these issues and cited this very old case I'm sure you guys have discussed before, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which stands for 
the proposition that the government can do a lot of stuff in an emergency. But the problem with citing that case, and you've seen NPR rely on it and do a very dumb uh, piece about it recently, is that we've had a growing body of scrutiny in our uh, United States Supreme Court that applies strict scrutiny to certain limitations on our rights, intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis scrutiny. I would argue that this type of regulation does not even survive rational basis scrutiny because treating people who have natural immunity, which is clearly superior to vaccine conferred immunity as unvaccinated and punish them is ridiculous scientifically. Um, and so, you know, I think that we're gonna see some very interesting arguments. I'm not sure I'm gonna make every argument. It'll depend on what clients, uh, you know, end up going into court next week or the week after that. But I think that uh, Eugene Volokh did a nice piece, I think I saw it earlier today on this issue. There are likely to be many, many lawsuits all over the country, and there's certainly gonna be some judge who issues an injunction, one of those notorious nationwide injunctions. Mm -hmm. And then we will see a lot of interesting legal maneuvering in the courts. Mm -hmm. Harmi, questions about two states. We'll come to California because that's a, that's, that's the state where that you and I love and hate and love and hate and love and hate. We've had this discussion going on for a long time. That comes next. First, Texas. Is it really out of the ordinary, or am I simply ignorant about this? Is it out of the ordinary for the Attorney General of the United States to say, Texas, the Texas legislature just passed and the governor of Texas just signed a law that we in Washington find so offensive that we're going to sue Texas. Of course, I'm referring to the abortion law in Texas, but that that feels to me unusual, if not absolutely extraordinary. Am I simply mistaken about that? Does justice do that kind of thing all the time? Uh, I think you are mistaken about that. In fact, if you were to flashback two or, th two or three months ago, you would have seen similar hype and umbrage with respect to the Georgia eminently reasonable Georgia voting rights package that sort of moderately tightened up some loopholes. And you saw Merrick Garland pounding the gavel and pounding the podium and, you know, talking about this being the apocalypse of, you know, justice and, and, and minority disenfranchisement. All nonsense, all posturing and all, frankly, failing in the courts. Those arguments are not winning in the courts. Um, you know, justice has become very politicized in a one-sided way, I'm sorry to say, you know, our side doesn't do that. We right. did not weaponize justice the way that this side has done that. In four years of, for example, uh, civil rights division under our previous administration, zero was done to tighten up the election laws, to tighten up um, discrimination against people in the schools on the basis of their, you know, gender um, in Title IX, and, and, and so many other things that could have been done, that should have been done weren't done. It's a one-sided, one-way ratchet of weaponization of the DOJ. So, um, you know, whatever, with respect to the, the Texas statute, I don't think politically, with abortion being the sacred cow of the left that it is, they could have done nothing. So they did something. But And, and frankly, I suspect that law was going to be challenged by taxi drivers and other people as, as fines began to get levied for violation of it. So... You know, it, it's pretty common on the left common. for this All type right. of thing to happen. Yeah. Okay, okay. Which brings us to California. Four days from now, voting ends <clears throat> in the recall election. And so, emote a little bit on Gavin Newsom. But in the midst of all that, give us some a kind of critique of the recall procedure. It is a very strange, you would not have designed the recall the way it stands now, would you? Well, and don't get too attached to it because it's certainly going to get changed, I think, uh, 
after after this recall election, uh, you know, as soon as Democrats can do that. They have a supermajority in both legislatures in our state. But I don't think it's that crazy. Question number one is, do you want this bum out or not? And then question number is that two the way is, it's worded? I, don't, I guess the, I don't remember the yeah, wording. Yeah, I think it's ballot. a little bit differently, the, the bum <laughs> part I'm, I'm summarizing. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that that's flawed per se. All of a sudden, Democrats are hyperventilating about how, oh, a minority of voters can decide this. Guess what? In California and in many other states, a minority of voters decide a lot of elections. Uh, a plurality of voters decide a lot of elections. Uh, our gubernator, our, our, our mayoral races in San Francisco, Kesa Boudin got a minority of the votes in San Francisco to become the district attorney, okay? Uh, you know, London breed, ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting works that way. So that is actually pretty common in the United States. Um, and, you know, I, I, what would I have that be? Have it be rounds of successive voting? I mean, elections A are expensive. Or, I, I think it's perfectly... Okay. I think it's perfectly fine. It's not certainly not unconstitutional. And I did file an amicus brief as well as a motion to intervene in the legal challenge that Erwin Chemerinsky had suggested be brought to the constitutionality of the statute. Somebody did that, and the, the, the judge kicked it out with the back of his hand as completely absurd. So, um, so I, don't think that, I don't think it's unconstitutional or illegal. Uh, I think it's also going to get changed. Is there any chance that the recall will succeed? Is there any chance that sure. the will get thrown out? Oh, you do, oh, you think so? I thought the polling in the recent, sure. last couple of weeks, the polling was turning in favor of Newsom. That's why you don't read liberal polls in the state <laughs> or any state. The, the, the purpose of these polls is designed to have exactly that effect on you. And then most people don't read into the crosstabs of the polls and realize they, they polled 90% San Francisco Democrats in line at the farmer's market as opposed to, you know, normal people doing their jobs in the Central Valley. Uh, you know, so po polls depend on who's being asked and what are the questions that are being asked. Um, you know, one of the other things that I think is going to be interesting is how many Republicans vote late in the process. The people who plan to vote in person over the next four days are going to be voting for the recall, according to one poll I did see, for what it's worth, at over 70%. But is that enough uh, to make up for the number of people who voted uh, by mail already? Definitely. Uh, I voted by mail, and I'm not a nuts about it. But at this point, you know, it is a legal way to vote in the state. And, and so we do like, as a political party, switching hats from lawyer to RNC committee woman, we do like to see voters go ahead and vote. Because with technology now, we know who has voted and who to chase. So because I voted already, I'm not getting phone calls on my phone bugging me to go vote. And if you have vote, haven't voted, you're getting those phone calls. It's a practical resource management deal for us. So okay. we like and it so, when people Har vote early. Harmeet, I, I have one more question, I'm sorry, about the California recall. And everybody, by the way, John and Bethany and James, you have already learned that if there's only one thing you remember about life, <laughs> the great rule of life is, Keep Harmeet on your side. That's what you want to do. <laughs> Listen, so so I've heard half a dozen stories that have the following nature, Harmeet. A friend of mine moved to Austin and did everything he could, filed every possible form, change mm -hmm. of address, remove my names from the voting rolls and so forth, because, of course, he wants to leave no trace of a California existence so that the state of California doesn't come after him for taxes. He's been in Texas right. for over a year now. He received a ballot sent to him to his Texas address. 
two of my children live out of state and have lived out of state. This is my story. This happened to me. I saw these mm-hmm. ballots with my own eyes, and my children were sent ballots. Do you is 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 this this kind of nonsense within the normal range of incompetence that have, that we would expect to see because humans are humans and polling or sending out ballots across the state as big as California is bound to involve some error, or are there shenanigans taking place here? Well, I think the answer is somewhere in between those two extremes. It's not normal and it's not legal. It's a violation of the national uh, of the NVRA, the National Voter Registration Act, and it should have been cleared up. In fact, Los Angeles County, the biggest culprit in this specific type of uh, shenanigans that you mentioned, um, has been sued by Judicial Watch and entered into a settlement that said it would clean up its voter rolls. So what's happened here is there are at least 10,000 Americans who moved out of California who have received ballots in this election. And that includes people whose, I mean, Mike, I I heard from from a lady whose brother died in Afghanistan in the war. And the family has taken steps to remove him from the ballot, and then they get triggered at every election because these idiots keep sending them his ballot out of state where they moved to Idaho or what have you. So this is a very serious problem. And, you know, if you have examples, uh, you know, offline, please have, have these people contact me because there is likely to be litigation regarding California's refusal to comply with the NVRA after this recall election. I think it's a very it's a serious problem. Now, you have to also be assuming from the voter fraud point of view that all these people are going to go commit the crime of voting in a place where they're not supposed to. But the warning on the ballot is confusing. It doesn't say it's illegal for you to vote in California if you live in Idaho. It says it's illegal to vote in the same election twice. Okay, well, they're not voting twice. They're voting one time. They may think they have, you know, like, so I think it is very, it's a trap for the unwary. In fact, it would be a crime for those people who have permanently moved to a different jurisdiction to vote. But, um... Uh, I think that, um, you know, California is very sloppy or worse, and that needs to be fixed. And there are legal remedies for that that will will be pursued after this election. Armin, thanks for joining us today. And we look forward to talking to you (laughs) in a few months when we uh, discuss your new role in the elder administration. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Armin, thank you. The people who moved to Texas may be getting ballots, but they have something else, and that's a little bit more money in their pocket because they're not dealing with onerous California prices and taxes and the rest of it. So what do you do with that money? Well, there's lots of things you can do, and one of them, of course, is charitable giving. We are sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. The Chronicle of Philanthropy recently reported that, apart from the pandemic, fewer middle-class Americans are giving to charity. The Economist, moreover, reports that charitable giving in America is being dominated by wealthy liberal donors who are driving the agenda in Washington, D.C. Do you feel called upon to buck that trend and give the causes that foster freedom and strengthen our communities? If so, Donors Trust can help. If you want to grow your charitable impact, open a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust and promote the organizations that are going to bat for everyday families at the local, state, and federal level. A donor-advised fund is like your own charitable investment account. With a fund, you can manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, it's tax-advantaged, and it's private. Donors Trust is unique, works with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that make America great. Donors Trust philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet for a free copy of our Donor Prospectus. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring this 
the Ricochet Podcast. Well, before we go, a couple more questions for John and Bethany, as long as we have you here, I suppose. Um, uh, let's see. I think we pretty much played out COVID. I don't think there's anything more that can be said about that unless you guys have something that will change everyone's minds and flip them from the adamantine position that they're in or not. I am against COVID. That's you are against COVID. <laughs> That's, yeah. I oppose it thoroughly. It's very, very brave of you. So, James, I disagree with you on the sort of idea that us arguing at it about it incessantly makes mm-hmm. no difference. Um, I think we should all become squeaky wheels. And this is, this is my number one how we can get back to normalcy argument. Um, I think we should all become squeaky wheels and fight every stupid thing that we see indefinitely. One, because it helps, again, vent unrelated anger about anything that's going on in your life. But um, I think that people need to hear that, like, the plexiglass at, at Dick's Sporting Goods is not necessary. Yes. It's not only not necessary, it actually yes. has been proven that it, it makes right. it, it traps works. the aerosols. So everywhere mm-hmm. I go, yeah, yeah, Well, like, we, we want maximum airflow. So the plexiglass stops maximum airflow, air movement, whatever. Um, but I, I got an email from my kids' soccer league about the fact that they had to wear masks outside. Unbelievable. And I emailed back and I said, if that's still yes, going on, correct? Yes. Oh, I don't doubt. Masking children outside. I got an email just now about something else that was masking children outside, and I reply to all of them and I say, if this is a condition of our participation outdoors. Uh, this is not something that we will be coming to. I, I have lines in the sand, and I have, like, a sort of boilerplate response where I link, like, the New York Times. Like, I don't link anything from conservative sites. I link it all from the New York Times and from sort of more liberal-leading places, and I say there is no – there's not a single case where you can point to outdoor casual exposure as a point of infection. Um I have, like, this whole thing. And I actually won the battle Yay. with my kids' outdoor well, work. Well, dis- I, I'm going dis- yeah, to disagree yeah. with you disagreeing with me. I think that's exactly <laughs> you should do what you're doing. Right. I agree with that. Right. I'm talking right. about the be, back and forth on, a, on, on Twitter and social media where, where people will, will never be dissuaded. In person, yes. On the, in, on the lower institutional yeah. level, yes, you can do something. I mean, I was at the office the other day and somebody had a mask on inside. He's vaccinated. I said, look, I, I, I'm double vaccinated, and I'm a COVID survivor. I've had it, okay? Don't worry. Tiger blood. Yeah. The virus bounces off my chest like bullets off Superman's. And so at that point, he felt that it was okay to take it off. And this is somebody who's always got the mask on as far as I can tell. So was it just the yeah, two of you? Yeah, separated, separated by oh, okay. a plexiglass divider at work. So, um, <laughs> I know, yes, I tire of these things too. And when you can say something and make a difference, yes. I mean, I recently had a conversation trying to convince somebody who was hesitant to get it. You know, why? Well, the FDA hasn't approved it. Well, actually, they approved it this morning. Yeah, I know. And it, it took work, and it didn't work. But you can try again. But on Twitter, on social media, on Facebook, it's just a madhouse of people screaming at each other with their horse dewormer lines and their covidiots and, uh, you know, the, the death Santas and the rest of it. It's a poisonous place for any sort of persuasion. Yeah. 
Yes, that's true. Although I will say I have formed wonderful relationships with lots of liberals who are also pulling their hair out. And I've seen a lot of liberal friends get completely yeah. red-pilled because of COVID, because they're seeing all of this. And I'm enjoying watching their red-pillization on Twitter live. And these would be liberals who, what, who place a great deal of importance on civil liberties? What, what, what is it? No, these, so mostly their parents. And they're ripping their hair out that their kids haven't been in school and they're watching their mental health and their academic success suffer a great deal. And they're sort of, they're having this window into the left where they're saying like, well, I know the data. This is clearly not a risk to my child. So why is their life being destroyed? And they're sort of, I can see their wheels turning over the last 18 months of like, they're blatantly lying. What is happening? And then they're sort of like, what? else are they lying about and i had that moment moving away from the left on israel i i sort of moved rightward religiously and became more interested in zionism and started reading sort of really dry textbooks about israel and my mind got changed on israel and then every subsequent thing that sort of moved me to the right i was super liberal in in high school and college and then once that that glass shattered it's like a, a reference to um how i met your mother i started started seeing all the lies of the left is what they were um, and i think that's what's happening to a lot of them bob conquest the late historian here at the hoover institution robert conquest the great historian bob conquest bob had a rule of politics one of the rules of politics one of the rules of politics is was that people are conservative everybody's conservative about what they know best. And they know their own family. They know their own children, yeah. don't they? Don't they? And when the state reaches yep. in, the state, bureaucracy, what power grab, whatever it is that reaches in and says, oh, excuse me, we're going to keep your children out of school for a year. Doesn't matter whether you voted for Joe Biden, whether you supported Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. You know that's not good for your child, right? I, that, that's the way it yeah. works. And what's crazy to me about what they're doing is that they're harming children in, in they're, they're harming the children of liberals mostly because all of this is happening in blue states. And so in a couple of years from now and even just a year from now, I have a next door neighbor. He has been bringing his kids to golf practice their entire lives and his kid his daughters are really talented golf players and it's it's catnip for colleges a, a young black woman who plays golf unbelievably well and they do play unbelievably well because their father has been bringing them to the course since they were toddlers and now he's like none of the recruiters are coming to maryland I can't get my kids recruited, but the kids in Texas are getting recruited. The kids in Florida are getting recruited. The kids in Idaho are getting recruited. My daughters, who have been working towards this for a free ride at college their entire lives, are not getting recruited. And so now my next-door neighbor is thinking about moving to Florida so he can get his daughter, who's, who's a, I think, a sophomore. She needs to yeah. get recruited yeah. next year. And he's like, what am I going to do? I, I've spent my entire like decade getting her this in at college. And it was a guaranteed in for a free ride. And he's, I can see him getting red pills. Or moved to, moved to Arizona. Where yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think it's uh, something similar. Yeah, we've had so many people move into Arizona. 
especially the California diaspora is uh, definitely uh, taken over here. But COVID mm -hmm. uh, and the reaction to COVID, I should say, is very similar to 9-11. I have an older brother, extremely far to the left. Uh, we both had the same government teacher in high school, five years apart, he's older than me. And uh, I got a 29, which is zero was crazy conservative. I got a 29. I was kind of disappointed at that. My brother, 100, would be basically you're the Unabomber and living in a cabin. He, my brother got 96. So this is how progressive he was. And then 9 11 happened. Can you not talk and about the Unabomber he, like that? You know that that's. Oh, come yeah, on. that's true. That's true. <laughs> a trigger for you. Yeah, but it's um, something that just. It shows you a different side yes. of reality. And uh, my brother started looking back at all the beliefs that he held and also a lot of reading of Tom Sewell before that uh, conversion uh, kind of primed the pump for a big wow. change. But he's definitely part of the right of me um, at this point and has been ever since 9-11. And I think you're seeing that a lot with COVID, talking to people, woman who cuts my hair, uh, just people I meet in an apolitical way who I've known have far to the left um, will pull me aside and just complain about the madness of the one size fits all COVID policy as regards yeah. school. A exactly. And so I think we will be seeing an after effect for years and it'll go in different ways. You also have more, forgive me for saying this, authoritarian-minded uh, conservatives who will say, wow, the Democrats really have a point here. We have to get stamp out these unruly governors and, uh, disobedient people, mm -hmm. but I think you're definitely seeing a lot more of the apolitical, slightly center-left, just because that's the right thing to do, to vote for the Democrat. Um, a lot of them are changing their minds, and I, you know, this is anecdotal, but uh, the anecdotes certainly are piling up for me. Well, you've used the term red pill, and of course, where does that come from? It comes from the Matrix. I think it's interesting that red is the color of communism, dirty commies, but yet it also got associated with our side of the fence, too, so away Awakening from the false reality into the truth of things, if it's going to be red as in red state and red pill, that's fine by me. It's just amusing that the term has been floating out there now five, six, seven years in the Internet. And we have a new Matrix movie coming out in which the people who live in a manufactured, tranquilized environment are the ones who are consuming the blue pills all the time. And once again, it will be the red pill that shocks them into the actual reality. I just can't wait for people to see the, the new Matrix movie and walk out and say, they stole that whole red pill thing from the Internet. <laughs> because there are people who will, because there are people who were not around when the first movie came out, just as there were people who were not around when 9-11 happened. Those of us who remember have the burden and the responsibility of carrying all of these things forward into the future, and uh, along with the ideas and, and greatness of America and the rest of it, it seems like a tough job sometimes, but the more of us, the better. And Ricochet is a place where you, too, can help make sure that the future remembers the great lessons and glories of the past. And obviously, that's said by somebody who's concluded. So in doing so, I have to tell you, it's been Raycon. It's been Quip. It's been donors. Trust support them for supporting us and join Ricochet today. Why don't you make sure there's a place to talk about these things forever and ever? Also, you can listen to the best of Ricochet Radio Show, hosted by some short guy with a balding pate. It can be found all over stations of the country in Radio America Network. It's our 52nd episode, one year of doing this. Here's to another. Check your local listings to see where we are. And please, if you could go to Apple Podcasts, I know that every podcast host begs you to do so. But we're special because we're, we're, we're really cravenly begging you to do so. Without 
absolutely no sense of shame whatsoever. Five stars will help more people find the show, more listeners, more people in Ricochet. The more voices at Ricochet, it just gets better. So, yeah, you can find John and Bethany on Twitter, but you can also find them at Ricochet, where you get to see them in more than 240 characters. I'm sure you can see Peter Robinson on Common Knowledge, but you can find him at the podcasts, dipping in now and then at Ricochet as well. It's a community like none other you've seen at the Internet. It's what you've been looking for since they plugged the World Wide Web in. I'm James Lodix in Minneapolis. Thanks to John and Bethany scattered about the country. Peter in California. Rob will be back next week, I hope. And we thank you for listening, and we'll see you all in the comments at Ricochet. Four point. Thanks, John. Thanks, Bethany. <clears throat> James, next week. Next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Peter. And, and a note to one of our listeners, Bill Crowley, this is your crumb.
Ricochet. Join the conversation. Bethany, your baby boy is adorable. Bethany, Bethany's baby boy is beautiful. You're so good, James, by the way. My God. <laughs>